right, I want you to take your Bible this morning and be turning with me to the book of Isaiah and the 42nd chapter, Isaiah chapter number 42. The book of Isaiah is going to be roughly halfway through uh, your Bible, something like that. Uh, That's on page 602 in my Bible, but that probably won't help you a whole lot. But we are kicking off a new series of messages this week uh, entitled, God Can't, God Can't. Can't. Did you know there are certain things God simply cannot do? Now you think, wait a minute, I thought God could do everything. And I know what we mean when we say that. My God is able to do anything. And I, I get what we mean when we say that. But it's not technically true. There are some things that God simply cannot do. Uh, for instance, here's something you can do that God can't do. You can forget. You can forget somebody's phone number. You can forget somebody's name. You can forget your anniversary. And if you do forget your anniversary, you might do something else God can't do. You might get killed. (laughs) But God cannot forget. And so when we talk about what God can't do, uh, in no way are we talking about something that limits God. But rather we are magnifying His perfections. We're looking at the things that actually make God, God. Think about it like this. Now being from Alabama, you may not be aware of this, but there is such a sport as professional football. Um... (laughs) It's not, it's not great for the most part, but every year as part of the NFL's kind of calendar, they have this, this event called the Scouting Combine, where all the guys who graduated college go and go through all these drills where their speed and their strength and different things are measured to see how high they are going to go in the NFL draft. If you go to the Combine and you do really, really well, then you're going to go high in the draft and make just billions of dollars. If you don't do as well, you're going to go lower in the draft and you're going to have to just get by on kind of a paltry couple million dollars a year. So at the NFL Combine, there are certain things that certain players simply cannot do. A 300-pound lineman cannot run a 40-yard dash in four and a half seconds. He cannot do it, not without breaking some bones and busting some arteries. But a wide receiver who could be able to run that 40 in that time, he cannot squat 850 pounds like the lineman may be able to do, not without his guts coming out of his eyeballs. He just can't do it. And in that sense, when we talk about what those guys can't do, we are looking at certain weaknesses, at least weaknesses that are trade-offs to look at their strengths, at what they can do. But you're also talking about their nature. How are they built? What are they going to be released on the field to do? And when we talk about what God can't do, we're talking about God's nature. And there are several very clear, very explicit statements in Scripture that tell us certain things God simply cannot and will not do. And when we talk about what God can't do, it's a great way to learn who God really is. And as we learn God's nature, as we learn who God is, it changes and shapes everything that is downstream from our understanding of who God is, which is everything. Folks, if the Bible is true, the most important thing about you today is what you believe to be true about God. The most important thing about you is what you think about when you think about God. And every other component of your life is affected by what you believe about God. The most important thing about you is not your family, it's not your upbringing, it's not your economic standing, your tax bracket, it's not even necessarily your race. The most important thing about you is not whether you're a Ford man or a Chevy guy. The most important thing about you is not whether you dip Skull or Copenhagen. The most important thing about you is what you believe about God because that informs your understanding of who you are. 
It informs your understanding of where you came from. It informs your understanding of what you're here to do. It informs your understanding of where you're going. But a lot of us really have just murky, unclear thinking about God. And we've got a lot of trash in our minds when it comes to how we think about God. And I think understanding what God can't do, it's going to help clear some of that pollution up for us. To see God more clearly, to understand His nature. And so we're going to look at several of these things God can't do. God cannot sin. God cannot forget His people. God cannot change. Today we're going to look at the first one here in Isaiah chapter 42. And that is that God cannot, God cannot share His glory. I want to show you that in Isaiah chapter 42. Begin reading in verse number 5. So I would like for you to stand with me now as we try and honor God's Word together. Isaiah chapter 42 and verse number 5. Isaiah 42, 5. Thus says God, the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations, to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. I am the Lord. That is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Behold, the former things have come to pass, a new thing I now declare. Before they spring forth, I tell you of them. Notice verse 8 again. I am the Lord, that is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. You can be seated. I really believe God's going to speak to us this morning. For us to better understand these Old Testament prophets like Isaiah, it kind of helps us to immerse ourselves in their world and, and know a little bit more about the contemporary concerns that they are facing as they preach the message that God has given them. And for Isaiah, the dominant thought that is on everybody's mind is the rise of the Assyrian Empire. The Assyrian Empire was this monstrous and barbaric regime that was just gobbling up nations all around the nation of Israel. And the people in Israel were watching the people of Assyria get closer and closer to their borders. The Assyrians were bad dudes. They are like the Nazis, Isis, and Thanos all rolled into one. They are horrible. And, and Israel looks at this and says, who's going to save us from the Assyrians? And of course, Isaiah is trying to preach and say, look to the Lord, trust in Him. He will take care of you. But the people of Israel thought, no, what we need are political saviors. And so they made alliances with bigger and stronger nations like the nation of Egypt, thinking that the Egyptians could be their saviors. But they also turned to other gods, thinking that whatever the god du jour was at the time would deliver them and protect them and take care of them. And so that may be a very foreign world for you to think about. But the heart condition of the people of Israel during this time is really not that different from ours, is it? Because every one of us have felt threatened by certain things in life. Every one of us have felt as if somehow life is falling apart or life is getting ready to be unraveled. And we feel like we need a Savior. We need someone or something who can piece us together and fix us. And we think that our status, our reputation, our accomplishments, our relationships, more success, better toys, all that stuff, that's what can fix us. Well, Isaiah sees that problem, and he begins to preach and say to people, you need to lay down your idols, and you need to trust in God alone who can save you. And he preaches here in chapter 42. He goes a little bit further in depth, and he says, the day will come when God is going to send forth this person, he calls in verse number 1, my servant. 
God is going to send forth a servant who will save his people with a perfect deliverance. Now, spoiler alert, that servant is Jesus. And what Isaiah says is that when this servant comes, he will represent and also embody the entirety of his people. It's almost like this servant will come and he will stand in for his people and rescue them, but they will be so captivated and changed by what this servant does that they will become like him and then they will stand with them. And Isaiah says there in verse number 8 that every bit of this comes from God's heart to bring glory to himself. What Isaiah is doing is he's looking ahead through all of time and he sees Jesus standing over all of history and he says Jesus is God's work to glorify himself over every counterfeit, over every substitute, over every false God that we could erect in our hearts. In fact, the Bible says back in Isaiah chapter 41 and verse number 24 that the Lord laughs at those other idols. He says, behold, you are nothing. You're work less than nothing. But you see there in verse number 1 that God delights in Jesus. He delights in His servant because He delights in bringing glory to Himself. So when Isaiah says that God is working to bring glory to Himself through His servant, when he says that God will not share His glory, Isaiah is saying something about God that many of you have never thought about. And that is that, yes, God is powerful. Yes, God is all-knowing. Yes, that God is loving and gracious and sovereign and good. God is all the things that make God God. But God knows that He is all the things that make God God. And God will not give the praise and the glory that He deserves to any counterfeit. He will not share it with any substitute. He will not trade it away for anyone or anything that is less than Him. So today... Hopefully to help you see the glory of God, we're going to look at this text where Isaiah reveals that underneath everything God does is God's pursuit of His own glory. Everything that has ever been has been because God is working to glorify Himself. But what is the glory of God? And why is God so adamant that He refuses to share that glory with anyone else? Well, I want to show you that today. And really what I want to do this morning... Because I want to break this down the way that the Puritans used to preach their sermon back in the 1600s. Doesn't that sound exciting? And what they would always do every single time is they would take their text or their idea and they would give you what they called the doctrine. Here's what the Bible says. And then they would give you the use. Here's what the Bible says. First part of the sermon. Here's what you do about it. Second part of the sermon. So I want to start today with the doctrine. And the doctrine here we see is God's passion for His own glory. The Bible teaches us from cover to cover, and here explicitly in Isaiah chapter 42 and verse number 8, that God is passionate for His glory. He will not share it. It's impossible for God to share His glory. So when we talk about the glory of God, what are we talking about? Well, the Bible uses the term glory to talk about God in several different ways, and there's always kind of some overlap there. Uh, there's certainly the glory that we give to God. There's also this kind of idea of the visible manifestation of the person of God, that God would show His glory to people, that they would get these visions and, and uh, kind of impressions of something about the physical nature of God, whatever that might be like. And they would talk about that in terms of fire descending, and they would talk about that like earthquakes. And you can read Ezekiel, and you can find out that when Ezekiel saw the glory of God, he had no idea what was happening. He's talking about wheels upon wheels, and he's seeing things that he does not have the vocabulary to describe. And it's thunderbolts and lightning, and it's all very, very frightening. And the glory there is God showing the glory of his being. 
But the glory of his being is what he's talking about here. He's not talking about a visible manifestation of the glory of God. But he's talking about his inherent glory. Really, he's talking about his significance. He's talking about the weight of who God is. God, by virtue of his nature and by virtue of his character, is infinitely beautiful. He is supremely important. He is majestic beyond compare. He is limitless in his perfections. He is the highest source of praise. He is the beginning and the end of all things. And by him and for him do all things consist. In other words, God is God and God matters. And again, God knows that about himself. It's not as if God is just so glorious and so great and so good and so awesome. And it's never dawned on God that all that's true. But God knows every bit of that is true. And so for God to be God, not only is He infinitely glorious, but He must be and is always pursuing His glory above everything else. So what do you mean? Here's what I mean. God is the highest good. And so God cannot pursue any lesser good above Himself. God must exist to promote Himself first. God is supremely God-centered. God is first in his own affections. God is relentlessly committed to being God. He is relentlessly and unceasingly committed to getting the glory that he knows that he deserves. God cannot share his glory because there's no one for him to share it with. God cannot give in to competitors because there is no competition. God cannot trade away his praise to substitutes because there are no substitutes. There's no one like him. There's no one but him. And so what Isaiah is showing us in this text is that God cannot share his glory because if God shared his glory with anyone or anything else, then that would make God an idolater. And God cannot be an idolater. So does that mean that God is selfish? Does that mean that God is wrong to be first in his own affections? Well, the answer biblically is no for two reasons. One of those is because God exists in a trinity as one God in three persons. And God is always pursuing the glory of the other members of that trinity. But... For our purposes today, what I want you to understand is this. It's wrong for you to be selfish because there are more important things in the world than you. I feel like I need to stop right there and preach for just a minute. And I know that may be a shock to you, and I'm so sorry you had to hear it this way. But there are more important things in the world than you. And for you to live as if you are the most important thing in all of the universe... That makes you a terrible person that nobody's going to like. So maybe we should just stop right now and have an altar call and pray and then go further. So just imagine some guy out there in the world who maybe he's my age, he has a wife, a couple kids, and instead of working to provide for his family, instead of taking care of them and leading that family well and loving them and sacrificing so that they can have a good life, let's just say he lays around on the couch for nine hours a day playing Fortnite and he smells like Cheetos and failure. You would look at that guy, and you would think that guy is a loser. And he is not worth the powder it would take to blow him off the couch. But why would you think that that guy is a mess? Because he's putting the lesser good of his own pleasure and the lesser good of his own fun above the greater good of his family. God is not the couch guy. He is never going to put the lesser good of anything above the greater good of pursuing himself. There is no greater, higher, more important, more pressing, urgent good for God than for God to be God. 
And for God to be concerned about anything else above his own glory means that God is pursuing lesser things above the greater. God cannot treat anything, anything but himself like he is God. It is not in God's nature for him to pursue lesser things above him. And since everything that is not God is a lesser thing than God, God simply must pursue his own glory. You still with me so far? If we understand this, then we're really ready to understand the message of the Bible. God is a perfect God who knows that he is a perfect God. And he knows that he is a perfect God with a perfect knowledge. And so God loves being God. And he loves seeing himself glorified because he knows there is no other higher, greater good. And when you read the Bible, you get this sense that it's almost as if God knows that as God, the best thing he can do with the knowledge of who he is is share it with other people. The problem is, there weren't any other people. So what did this glorious, great God do? He made some people. And he said, come and know my glory. Come enjoy me. Come experience me. Come see me. And that's where the Bible starts. That's not where the Bible ends, is it? Because every single one of us have done exactly what Isaiah is writing about in Isaiah chapter 42. And we have pursued lesser things as if they are more good and more glorious than God. So we've seen the doctrine, God's passion for his own glory. Let's get down to the use, God's pursuit of his own glory. What does this actually mean for us in the way that we live, that God will not trade his glory away? Well, Isaiah looks ahead here in Isaiah chapter 42 uh, to this time period when this servant will come. And this servant is going to do many important things. Jesus, when he comes, verse number 1, he will bring justice to the nations. Verse number 3, he will show compassion to the hurting. Verse number 10, he will produce worship in the hearts of his people. Verse 16, he will bring light into darkness. Verse 17, he will shame the idolaters. And everything that God does in Jesus, he does for his own glory. So Isaiah looks ahead and he sees a future that is colored by God's pursuit of his praise. So since everything that God is, everything that God desires, everything he pursues, everything he loves, everything he hates, since it's all motivated by his desire for his own glory, then that means that there is no event in history that does not exist and happen for the glory of God. Now, does that mean we always understand how it glorifies God, especially in times of tragedy? No. But we have to believe that God is bigger. There's no moment of the future that is untouched by God's desire to glorify himself. As we were singing just a moment ago, I thought that that really is the culmination of all time and eternity is God's people at the feet of Jesus giving him glory forever. That's what God's doing. That's what he's up to in the world. But it also means that there should be no part of my life that is untouched by my desire to glorify this God. And there is no part of my life that is untouched by God's desire to glorify himself. That every act of desperate praise, every moment of confession and repentance, every time that I lift up a prayer to God, every act of service, everything that I give, the way that I love other people, every bit of that should be done for the glory of God. In fact, the Bible teaches this. So strongly that the Bible actually says in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse number 31 that whatever you do, whether you eat or drink, you should do it for the glory of God. That means that when you go to Milo's this afternoon and you have your hamburger and your french fries and you dip your french fries into that double O sauce and you drink three liters of sweet tea and nearly kill yourself and poison your pancreas, you should do that for the glory of God. 
Maybe not the killing your pancreas part, but every bit of that for the glory of God because God has blessed you with a good life in a good world and you should give praise to God even in the smallest, most ordinary, mundane details. The glory of God is the reason for everything. But you're probably already noticing a problem, aren't you? I'm noticing a problem just today. And that problem is that God just really isn't that interesting to us, is He? I've noticed in the 11 years that I've been a pastor that the sermons I preach that bore people the most are the sermons that are just about God. I can see it taking effect to some of y'all this morning. That when we just talk about God, not about what God can do for us, not about the blessings God gives, not even about what God expects of us, where we can come to church and judge all the other people who aren't measuring up. When we just talk about who God is, that's just interesting. It's almost like as if it's almost like, like the last thing we expect to hear when we come to church is somebody just talk to us about God. Because there's so much more that's interesting to us. There are a lot of things that excite us, but God's not one of them. I can say it no better than Ray Ortland said it in his commentary on Isaiah 42. He said, The real problem causing the sinful behavior is some idol or other captivating our hearts by promising to make us happy, and we fall for it. We tell ourselves that our joy and our freedom and our significance and security require something more than Christ. Our faith in Him is so unimaginative. And notice this next sentence. This wrecked me when I read it this week. Our expectations of Him are so low. We run from Him to stuff ourselves full of counterfeit pleasures and empty salvations. Is that not true? That our expectations of Jesus are so low. Jesus really just isn't enough to make me safe in life. Folks, if Jesus is enough to save you, He's able to make you safe no matter what you go through in life. Jesus really just is not enough to make me happy or give me true peace. Not, he, he's not enough like material wealth is. He's not enough like my freedom from anybody else's expectations. That's better. Jesus is okay. But he can't do for me what this relationship over here can do for me. And that's how every one of us live our lives. And it's how all of our lives look if we could see them from God's perspective. That God sees us chasing these substitutes. He sees us chasing these counterfeits. He sees us trying to give his glory to anything and everything else that is less than him. We are glory junkies who pursue the glory that can only come from God and try to give glory that only goes to God in everything but God. And I can prove it to you. You know I can prove it to you? Lady Gaga. Now I know. Like I know. Lady Gaga and I are barely on the same theological label length. And her fashion could use a little help too, but... The Almond Brothers didn't have a song that fit as well, so we'll go with Lady Gaga. All right, she had a song several years ago that came out called The Edge of Glory. And I'd heard that song before, and I wanted to go back and see what was she really singing about in that song. Here are the lyrics to the first verse and the chorus of this song. It's weird when you just read it, so just listen up, all right? There ain't no reason you and me should be alone tonight, yeah, baby, tonight, yeah, baby. I told you it's weird just to read it. But I got a reason that you who should take me home tonight. I need a man that makes it right when it's so wrong. Tonight, yeah, baby. Tonight, yeah, baby. Right on the limits where we know we both belong tonight. It's time to feel the rush to push the dangerous. I'm going to run right to, to the edge with you where we'll both fall far in love. 
I'm on the edge of glory, and I'm hanging on a moment of truth. And on the edge of glory, and I'm hanging on a moment with you. Now, she's not going to win a Pulitzer Prize, okay? But what she's saying, what is she really saying in that song? She's saying that with this guy, and all the dangerous excitement, and the romance, and the love that we can experience together, I'm right here on the edge of glory. This guy can take me and give me, really, what only God can give her. Friends, Lady Gaga is not just singing a song. She's preaching a sermon. And it's a sermon that many of us have believed. Whether it's about success or relationships or how people think about us or the things that we can purchase, we all believe that there's something out there that really can take us to the edge of glory and give us what only God can give us. But if God knows that He is the source of all good and the source of all life, and He sees us trading His glory for these lesser things, what does He call that? Well, the Bible calls it idolatry. The Bible calls it spiritual adultery. The Bible calls it sin. Every sin is an insult to the glory of God. Every sin that has ever been committed in the history of the human story has said, in effect, God, you have overestimated your own glory. And we've all done that. Pursuing other things as if they can be for us and do for us what only God can be and do. So how can God be for His glory and possibly be for our good? When we have said there is some good outside of the glory of God, friends... The answer is in this servant that Isaiah writes about in Isaiah 42. In the Lord Jesus who would come to secure and show the glory of God and also bring us into goodness. Listen to how Paul writes about the cross in Romans chapter 3. In particular in verse number 24 and 25. It says that we are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus whom God put forward as a propitiation, that means an offering to cover up sin, by His blood to be received in faith. Paul says, this was done to show God's righteousness. The cross is a defense of the glory of God. Because every sin that we had ever committed said, God really is not that glorious. And at the cross, God punished that sin in Jesus, saying the whole time, I am glorious. I will not let your sin go unnoticed. I will not let your sin go unpunished. But at the cross, God was also saying, I am for your good, even though you have not pursued my glory. And friends, it's in the story of Jesus that we begin to understand that God, who is for His glory, is also somehow for our good, though we have not pursued His glory. God has said, I will punish your sin. That is a rejection of my beauty and my worth. And I will do it in my Son to show you my glory and invite you in to experience my goodness. Which means today that God in His grace is inviting every one of you out of the frustrating dead ends. Out of those counterfeits that you worship that never provide for you what they promise. And He's asking you to enjoy what He Himself enjoys, which is Him. That is the invitation of the gospel. The gospel is so much more than God loves you and doesn't want you to go to hell. The gospel is that God is for His glory. And God invites you to experience what He experiences. God is the gospel. He is the gift of the gospel. He is the gift given at the cross. And He's the gift given over and over again as He brings us into His glory. But C.S. Lewis diagnosed it exactly right. 
He preached a sermon many years ago called The Weight of Glory. And he said all this better than I can say it. We should have just printed off this sermon and let you read it today and went home. But here's what he said many years ago. He said, we are half-hearted creatures. Fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. He said, we are like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at sea. He said, we are far too easily pleased. He said, we are like a bunch of poor, dumb kids that have grown up in poverty in the slums our whole life. And the only thing that we have to do to find any kind of pleasure is to sit around and make mud pies. And some rich guy comes along and says, you kids load up and we'll go on a cruise. And because we are so poor and broken, we can't fathom what it means to go to the beach and to see the ocean. We say, no thanks, we'd rather make mud pies. What the Bible says to us is that God does not want you to settle for mud pies. That God comes into our slums. He comes into our sin. And He says to us over and over and over again, leave here. Let's get away from the mud pies and let's go experience something far better. And so our hearts are so tuned to look for glory in anything and everything else and give glory to anything and everything else. But the Bible teaches us that this servant would come and he would uniquely display the glory of God in this world. John says in John 1, 14, that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Jesus became flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen His glory. Glory as of the only Son of the Father that He is full of grace and Truth. John says, we looked at Jesus and there we saw the glory of God. We looked at Jesus and we saw the glory of a love that would never let us go. We looked at Jesus and we saw the glory of faithfulness that would never walk out on us. We looked at Jesus and we saw a God who is holy and righteous and totally apart from sin, yet absolutely invested in the lives of sinners. He said, we looked at Jesus and there we saw in the person of Christ, in His life and His death and resurrection that yes, God is supremely committed to His glory. But as part of the means to glorify Himself, He is also for our good. And what God has always done in the lives of His people, God has always, always connected our good to His glory. The prophet Samuel even preached that way back in 1 Samuel chapter 12. Samuel says to the people, do not be afraid. You have done all this evil. You have sinned. Yet do not turn aside from following the Lord, but serve the Lord with all your heart. And do not turn aside after empty things that cannot profit or deliver, for they are empty. For the Lord will not forsake His people for His great name's sake, because it has pleased the Lord to make you a people for Himself. What has God done for us and in us? He is committed to doing the greatest good He can to bring us to Himself. For the sake of His name. So that means for the child of God today. That everything that God does in our lives. He's doing for our good and for His glory. That His glory is eternally connected to our good. And if God is going to pursue His glory. As Isaiah says He has to. Then He's also always pursuing our good. And Isaiah sees this incredible glimpse of this in Isaiah chapter 42. And he goes into a lot of things that will happen but he says in verse number 10, he says to the people, Sing to the Lord a new song, His praise from the end of the earth. You who go down to sea and all that fills it, the coastlands and their inhabitants, let the deserts and cities lift up their voice. And he goes on to say in verse 12, Let them give glory to the Lord. Isaiah is saying that when this servant comes, he said praise will invade the earth. 
And God will bring worship out of His people. Did you know that as a child of God, everything that happens in you, really everything that you should be about, everything that you do is about bringing glory to God. Listen to what Jesus says in Matthew 5, 16. This is in the Sermon on the Mount. We're going to be studying the Sermon on the Mount together this summer here at Sharon Heights. Lord willing, we're going to jump into that the Sunday before Memorial Day and go all the way to the Sunday around Labor Day. But Jesus says, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Jesus says your life is supposed to be a display of the glory of God. The way you treat people, the way you forgive people, the way you pursue holiness, the way you love others, the way you serve, everything you do should be a display of the glory of God. That God's great goal in our lives is to show His unequaled worth, to show that He is better than every competitor, to show that He is better than every substitute, to show that He alone deserves praise and glory. I was thinking about that this morning. Knowing that as a church we have Bible school coming up. Do you know why you should volunteer to serve those kids during Bible school? You know why you should mix Kool-Aid and serve sandwich cookies and change diapers and run the halls chasing those kids? For the glory of God. That's why you should do that. That's why we should do every single thing that we do as a church. So that people would see those good works and not give praise and glory to us, but give glory to God. Amen. Well, anyway, I tried, so. (laughs) Kids, I'm sorry. If nobody shows up for Bible school, I'm sorry. But it's also true that if God really is pursuing His glory above everything else in our lives, that that often hurts us. Because we are so attached to those things that we love, those things that we depend on, those idols that we put all of our security and all of our confidence in, we depend on them so much. That when God takes them from us for His glory, it hurts. In fact, most of the moments of life where we really go through our deepest suffering and deepest pain, it's not really emotional and it's not really physical. Not at the bottom of it. At the bottom of it, it's spiritual. And God is ripping some idol out of our lives so that we fall back on Him. But what is God doing in those moments of suffering? Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, 17 and 18, he says, For this light momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory. Beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. Many times God is laying to rest our idols. And He forces us to go to their funeral and throw flowers on their grave to prove His glory. Why? Because He's for His glory and for our good. And if God is for His glory and for my good, then I can always trust Him. For right now, some of you are hurting in life. Physically, relationally, and God, it seems like, is hurting you. But God's not trying to hurt you. What God is trying to do is show His love to you by saying He loves you too much to let you settle for any substitute. And He's taking things from you that you thought could keep you safe, that you thought gave you joy, that you thought were more significant than Jesus. God is systematically annihilating those things. Not because He hates you, but because He loves you. To prove His glory. To prove that He really is God. And that He is enough. When I first started pastoring, I guess I'd been pastoring for six months, maybe a year. There was a gentleman in our church right around 40 years old that was diagnosed with stage 4 lung cancer. He had two teenage boys at home. 
and the doctors told him, basically, there's no hope for you. And as a church family, uh, we did what you would expect a church to do. We tried to love those folks and minister to them, and we prayed. And we prayed specifically for God to do a miracle of healing. And I can remember in my mind like it happened this morning. I can remember one Friday afternoon, I was helping a friend of mine put a metal roof on a home. And I had come off of the roof to get a drill bit, I think, to run the screws through that metal. And I was walking back to the truck to get whatever part it was I needed. And I was praying for that guy that had cancer. And I was praying as fervently and as earnestly as I've ever prayed in my life. And I was praying, God, I want you to heal him. God, I know that you can. God, I believe that you can. And I told the Lord, I said, God, if you'll heal him, if you'll do a miracle, I know he would glorify you. I know people would honor you. I know, Lord, that people would see how powerful you are. And you would get all the praise for that. And it's almost as if God told me in my heart, not audibly, but in a way that's much louder. He said to me, I know how to glorify myself better than you do. Now, I didn't stop praying for the guy. And I'd like to tell you that God performed a miracle. Now, that guy is healed today. He's in better health than any of y'all are. Don't worry about that. Friends, that's true. God does know how to glorify himself better than we do. God knows how to glorify himself in a job loss so that he can show maybe the constant provision of all of our needs to show that our security does not come from work or our ability to provide for ourselves, but in his ability to take care of us. God knows how to bring glory to himself as you care for an aging spouse or an ailing parent or a special needs child for year after year after year. We wonder, God, why is it this way? God knows how to prove the glory of his faithfulness over those years. He knows how to show himself trustworthy. God lets things fall apart all the time in us so that we'll see he is better than a job. He is better than what people think about us. He is better than our ability to take care of ourselves. He is better than our independence. And ultimately, He is better than life itself. God will not give His glory to another. Now, today as we finish up, I feel like it's kind of hard to give an invitation to a message like this because I feel like I should just say, y'all go and think better thoughts about God. You know, that's kind of about it. But if you did, how would those thoughts change you? Right now, I know some of you sense in your heart that you don't see God as glorious. I mean, he may be good and all, he may be all right. But you really do believe and live like something else is the key to joy and safety. You may not be convinced that he is as glorious as he thinks he is. Even if you're a believer in Jesus. But what would it do in your life if you came to the Lord today and just said, Lord, I really don't see you as glorious. I really don't see you as the greatest good. I really don't want you to use my life to show your glory. I want to use my life to pursue the glory of other things. What would happen if you came and told God that? It's not like you don't know, right? What if you came and said, Lord, that's where I am and I want you to change me. I want you to take my life and I want you to use it to show your glory. I want to see it for myself. I want to know that Jesus is better than anything else I might trust in. And Lord, I want to show that to other people. What would happen if you did that? A lot of us are too afraid to pray that way. What if some of you came right now and said, Lord, I want to trust you. 
I want to love you. I want to see your glory. I want you to glorify yourself in my life. And Lord, I want you to know that from my heart, there's nothing off the table. There's nothing, Lord, that I'm going to hold back from you. Say, Lord, it's yours. Prove you are more glorious and more wonderful than everything else. Lord, prove your glory in my life. We're going to stand together today. We're going to sing a hymn of invitation. And I'm going to invite you to come today if you don't see God as glorious. If you realize you've been pursuing other things above Him. If you know you've been trying to share God's glory and you know He's not going to do it. It'd be good for you to come today and tell God what He already knows. And say, Lord, help me to trust you to do what you are going to do and bring glory to yourself in me. Let me pray for you, then we'll sing. Father, you know our hearts that we are so easily led astray to idolatry. Lord, like we talked about in Sunday school this morning, idols are everywhere. And Lord, they are easy. They are easy. Our hearts, Lord, are factories of idols. We produce them every day. But God, they can't save us. They can't help us. They can't offer what we think they promise. They can do nothing for us. And Lord, we need to trust and see your glory. God, do that in us. Do it in us as a church, but do it in us as your people individually. So Lord, do your work in hearts now. And I pray in Jesus' name that you would make people see that there's nothing as great and glorious as you. And I pray that you would do it by any means necessary. And amen.